It was such a breath of fresh air to find out from some of the bigger casting directors and talent agencies in the Southeast that were basically saying, you know, it is very possible for you to have a career here in the Southeast. So I was like, okay, well, if it's a doable thing, let's let's make it happen. Welcome to There to Hear, an educational podcast where industry professionals talk nuts and bolts and how they got from there to here. On today's show, Jose Miguel Vasquez takes us behind the scenes acting in the Netflix miniseries, The Liberator, diversity in film, and his venture into a YouTube channel with his family. If you want to keep in touch with us, you can follow our new Instagram, Collab Inc. Film. This is also the place to ask your listener questions now, Collab Inc. Film. From Collab Inc., I'm Tanya Musgrave, and today we have Jose Miguel Vasquez, Atlanta-based actor in the Netflix miniseries that features groundbreaking animation, The Liberator. You can also see him in The Walking Dead and Cobra Kai. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. This is absolutely exciting. Thank you. (laughs) We're excited. Uh, Let's start with your background. How did you get from there to here? You know, I gave up on this dream because I I became a dad pretty young and I thought, man, the responsible thing is to just put all that aside and just do what I had to do for my family. Mm -hmm. Then the dream came back and it came back in the shape of just sticking to college. I went to school with my three kids and my wife. We literally were walking University of Central Florida campus with babies and strollers <laughs> and taking turns taking classes mercy and i i really thought the safest thing to do was just to get a teaching degree but lo and behold i ended up getting into acting right out of college because of the 2008 bubble bursting the economic bubble burst and mm-hmm. there were no teaching jobs i was able to start acting after graduating in 2008 because of this like unfortunate circumstance and i found this career that i had given up had just kind of returned to me in the shape of first commercials in Orlando, Florida is a pretty prominent commercial industry. And then when things really started to get serious by 2009, 2010, with doing some more theater, obviously the hubbub of, well, let me get into TV. This has always been kind of like my dream. And that led to a TV show that I filmed in South Florida called Burn Notice. But then obviously some of my friends that knew I was doing this, they had already moved to Atlanta because Atlanta was becoming this hub that it is now. And they started literally texting me like, Jose, you know, you need to be seen for this. You need to be auditioning for that. So that led to me getting an Atlanta agent. I signed on and within the week I had an audition for a film. I think the following week after that, I had a callback and then I had to drive up to Atlanta during the snowpocalypse of 2014. And my wife was like, no, we're very, we're a very close knit family. I mean, my family's going to be all over this podcast. So it's only normal that you hear as of now, they were coming with me to this snowpocalypse callback, which by the grace of God, I got cast in. I got to work with Vince Vaughn. I was directed by Peter Billingsley. The film was Term Life. And that really opened my eyes to this world, this city that was like unified in its understanding, at least it seemed so at the time, mm-hmm. of this industry that was starting to shape its economy and its its culture. And I was blown away by the way the streets were closing down and people just kind of got it. They were annoyed, but they got it. They understood mm-hmm. this is what needed to be done. A major film was being filmed with big stars on set and big directors and all this stuff. This is my dream come true. Mm-hmm. Absolutely dream come true. And that's really where it started. From there, we moved here and... That's essentially how I got here, really. Oh, that's incredible. As far so, as Atlanta, logistically. Yeah, yeah. Atlanta. Um, I mean, that was actually one of our listener questions was how important was that move to Atlanta? Because, I mean, mm. you were you were in Florida 
And uh, one of the main things that people think acting, they think LA, obviously. Yeah. So why Atlanta? That was my question when I was in Orlando, <laughs> because, you know, it, funny enough, having a, a strong family unit is so key. And it's one of the things we talk about in our, in our YouTube channel, Faith Family Film. Mm-hmm. I remember my wife sat me down when I really was considering this. And she said, look, if you need to go to LA to do this, do it. Don't, don't let me and the kids hold you back. We're here for you, whatever you got to do. Mm. And that was a big, that was a big thing for her to say to me. And this was when we were in Orlando, we were barely finishing college yet. And I was just in no position to even have a vision of me going to Los Angeles. And to be honest, Los Angeles has always been this place that I'll go when it calls. It's never been in my instinct because I, I, I was a daddy first and then actor second, but it's never been my instinct to pursue Los Angeles. Mm. And so it was such a breath of fresh air to find out from some of the bigger casting directors and talent agencies in the Southeast that were basically saying, you know, it is very possible for you to have a career here in the Southeast. So I was like, okay, well, if it's a doable thing, let's, let's make it happen. And I just found out what I needed to do. I had the meetings I needed to have uh, with, for example, the Finn Cannons. Finn Cannons and Associates are one of the biggest casting directors in the Southeast. And they looked at me and they said, you could move to Atlanta. You don't have to. You could work out of Orlando. If you move to Atlanta, obviously it's going to be the hub and you'll have a little bit more of a direct link to certain things. But mm-hmm. they they were very adamant about don't ever feel limited by where you are. And this was this was back in 2000, 2011, probably. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, don't don't be limited by anything. We're living in a very digital age. It's it's changing. It's changing. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, here we are in the COVID days and the Southeast, we've been self-taping for the longest time. It's not anything strange or weird for us. There's always been this sense of kind of being ahead of the game. You know, Tyler Perry set the tone during, even during COVID with all of this, uh, of of knowing how to have this like bubble to keep everybody safe so they can Mm -hmm. still make these shows. Ultimately, it was a beautiful surprise that I could come up to Georgia and make a living. I've not been to LA yet and it's going to be exciting when I go out there because it's not the place I'm chasing. Speak a little bit more on how Atlanta has changed over the years. I remember hearing, oh, Atlanta's kind of the the new East Coast LA. And then I also heard later, oh yeah, but Atlanta doesn't have the infrastructure. They're all going back to LA. Put your finger on the pulse of Atlanta for a second. <laughs> it's always seemed to me that this place just kind of finds a way to continue to offer a place for people to film, mm. for people to work. Again, I brought up Tyler Perry. He was kind of adamant that we're going to keep working and we're going to make it, make sure everybody's safe. But even before COVID, I realized that it's a part of the morning news. You know, you get your weather report, you get your your usual reports in the morning. Well, apparently here, it's normal for you to get road closures due to filming reports mm-hmm. that way you can kind of navigate traffic so i came from florida where florida is still wanting to have something like that and because i i know the void <laughs> i appreciate the plenty that yeah. we're living here yeah. you know i came here in 2014 and it, it was already you know moving full steam mm. obviously with with this year 2020s just put a halt on so many things but guess what the moment SAG-AFTRA came through with its safety protocols and everything was in line and everybody was on the same page, it was like instantaneous. You start hearing about all these folks going back to sets and mm-hmm. getting auditions. The amount of of activity 
that's been going on is exponential. I mean, really? it's it's like we're like a Tesla car. We go to zero from zero to sixty in like two point five seconds. It's it's amazing. Mm. So the Liberator is a four part series released on Veterans Day, November eleven. This involved a completely new technological space with Trioscope Studios. What can you tell us about your experience with the filming process? Trioscope Studios has amazing leadership, great people at the helm. Um, they are Atlanta-based, and they are very proud to say they're Atlanta filmmakers. But their ideas expand beyond the, this market, and I think it's it's a global thing, and it's a beautiful thing. When they brought the Liberator, this concept was, was so new, and yet... It's so important to our history. It's so important to to tell it in this way, in this kind of new format. Yeah, I loved it. I absolutely, I was blown away by how much my craftsmanship was vital, vital to the whole thing. Hmm. The way the way we created this story truly relies on the interaction of the actors, mm-hmm. the believability of how immersed we are in our environment. Were you on a set? Like in an environment? Fantastic question. Yes and no. Physically, it's just all blue. Yeah. And you wonder, okay, well, you know, it's kind of like what you hear with all CGI. You have reference points and you know where to talk and this and that and the other. We were given very specific visual cues so that we would know this is the moment to, you know, duck, cover, scream, yell, cry, whatever. Mm. It felt like theater, Tanya, is the best way I've been able to describe this to folks. Mm. You know, when you go watch a show and it's like a black box theater and mm. some of these shows that are very avant-garde, it's all black <laughs> and and my sofa is a black block, right? It's just a cube of of my emotions or whatever. Well, <laughs> it, it, it's, it was more tangible than that. That's the good news. And it helped us. It helped us because... They gave us just enough reference so that we wouldn't be lost in our imagination. We would all know exactly where we were standing and walking and sitting and interacting with each other. So that's why I say yes, we were on location because imagination-wise, we had to be on a bridge or underneath the bridge. Really? So you weren't actually on because it looks like it, it mm-hmm. honestly looks like you guys were filming in a field or on a bridge or what have you. And they, you know, like these, these guys just went through and rotoscoped and stylized it up and put it through some kind of a filter or something like that. You know what I mean? It looked (laughs) like, it looked like you guys were on location. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's exactly what we want. We want you to feel like you're there. You know, here's the thing. When you have Jeb Stewart, the writer and Greg Junk Titus, and you have Elsie Crowley, and they're there, they're, they're accessible, and they're, they're giving you their passion for the story. Mm. Then that blue world is not just a blue world. It's mm-hmm. now it's this thing that's starting to come to life as we're, as we're creating it as actors. And then obviously in post-production, the magic they do, that is beyond my skill set. I, I don't exactly know. I, I don't know what they do. And I'm just blown away. Well, but just the trailer, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so <laughs> amazing. Well, your director yeah. is like certainly not a stranger to visual effects. No, no. He's he's well versed in this in this okay. world. Yeah, he's like yeah. he's been involved with anything, Marvel Universe, <laughs> Star Wars, like he's uh-huh. insane. You know, those so, little titles, those yeah. little indie films. You've like, heard them. <laughs> How was it different or was it actually the same as uh kind of like the blue screen, green screen? It really did feel like we were just having to imagine being in France. Okay. 
but yeah. the camera, all of everything was the same. Everything okay. was the okay. same. Oh, okay. Okay. But I do know, and I and I did ask prior to our podcast because I wanted to understand. You know, this there's this thing called triosphere, and I, I think it's just they they have these triangle angles, and they have a certain way that they shoot so that it, it helps create. I don't know if it's a depth thing, hmm. but all I know is that they they position us and the camera and and the the setting itself and they kind of just they know how to use this triosphere atmosphere to create a special environment where i think in post or maybe right on the spot i genuinely don't know triosphere yeah that's what they that's what they use it's it's the term they've kind of thrown at me and i was like oh yeah triosphere <laughs> <laughs> what the heck is that yeah it's three of something. I mean, you know, I know a little bit of Latin. Uh, that's that's as much <laughs> oh as I can decipher. It, it's it's a thing, and it, it's extremely impressive. I mean, is it a physical thing, or is it just how they set things up? I think it's just a setup. I can honestly okay. tell you, there was nothing on set, like as far as an apparatus, where I was like, "What is that?" Oh, okay, okay, like a, okay. You know, I didn't see anything like that, and I think that's the that's kind of the the wonders thing of it. I remember you look around like, all right, this looks like a regular set. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Cool. But they clearly had some tricks up their sleeve and I love it. So this film, it is a fascinating world war two story about a unit, mm. the Thunderbirds made up of native Americans, Mexican Americans, dustable cowboys. And uh, they endured a brutal 500 day trek through Nazi occupied Europe. And your cast was fantastic to look through. You had Latino, a Native American clinket, British, yep. Scottish. Um, mm -hmm. The range of representation was fantastic. And the yes. director himself is Polish. So I imagine like mm -hmm. connecting with this subject matter happened on a deeper level for many of you. Well, you know, when I got notice of the casting, it very specifically said, we'll be filming in Poland. And I was like, what? Oh, fantastic. How exciting. <laughs> How cool. And, you know, you do the casting, you do the audition, you submit the tape. And then when the thing comes in that you got it. Oh, my gosh. I was beside myself because I was like, OK, we're going we're going to I'm going. Well, I'm going to Poland and going to Poland. And, I, and sure enough, it worked out. Uh, we shot in Wuj for many reasons, but at least for us actors, it completely immersed us. Um, it was we were in the vicinity of where so much of this happened. We were just like two miles away from one of one of the biggest ghettos, uh, the Jewish ghetto of during World War II. Oh wow! We actually got to go to Auschwitz and experience what that felt like. Yeah, it's a life altering experience. But but filming there gave us, although we filmed in in Blue Studio most of the time, all the time, any chance we got to go out and connect with the places where some of this stuff took place, we did it. And just being there, you know, there's just so much history, just looking at the buildings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it was important. It was important to have, have us there. I think the, the thing that popped for me, you know, and I say popped because literally my, my soul jumped when I got the audition for this. It was an opportunity to play amongst a group of actors that would be representing a true story of inclusivity mm -hmm. in the 1940s. Mm what yeah. hold on and that made me dig deep into history and what was going on in those days um that nobody talks about but it, it's a beautiful lens to see the story of felix sparks and the kind of soul that the the character that this man had to see beyond the 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 racial limitations that the culture of the day were putting on these these individuals hmm. 
And instead he saw their potential. He saw their spirit. He saw their, their passion for, for brotherhood and for country. It was just a wonderful gift to be asked to be a part of telling the story, which is, I mean, again, the thing that, that always leaves my heart just thrilled is that this is based on a real individual. You know, he endured a lot. Felix Barks endured a lot, but I think the loss of his brothers throughout the whole thing mm -hmm. is something that we can only imagine. The team at Trioscope, that's one of their main passions with this project is to display the beautiful array of colors and cultures that are, are brought together in this, in this effort to, to bring down Nazi Germany mm. and, and to unite as brothers to fight together for something greater than themselves. I remember in school, I'd be learning about World War II and I was like, man, that must have been cool to fight. Right. And now as a grown man, you, you, you consider the family effect, the effect on country. And then it hits you. A lot of these individuals, they've passed on and all, all we're left with is their stories. This limited series is going to bring people to just sit around and and listen to a story that needs to needs to live on. What I've found is that bit by bit, you will have layers and layers and layers of a bunch of these different stories involved and how people join the resistance, right? I mean, it's stories that haven't come out until literally now, <laughs> like mm -hmm. this, like the Thunderbirds. And then you start to hear more stories and how people of all different races came together to resist the, what was mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful thing because you don't necessarily hear about all of these little stories. So like, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm very excited. <laughs> it's a more positive um, into the human spirit. And unfortunately, we do have to see the negative to see the positive. But again, it is ultimately a story of the human spirit prevailing just in, in terms of, of these different cultures coming together and fighting for something greater than themselves. So you had mentioned teaching. That all kind of started back in my Orlando days. Oh, when I uh -oh. started at the theater, I started teaching there. That became the thing I was kind of doing. You know, I graduated to be a teacher and I ended up teaching at theaters mm -hmm. while I got to play and perform in theaters. And now all these years later, I've recently been coaching on sets I got to coach once on The Walking Dead. I just coached and I got to play in a movie called Unarmed Divide, which is going to be on the Peachtree Film Festival. You know what it is? I get to just make sure people are living in the moment. I just try to honor the gift that I find when I'm so connected. Like right now, talking to you, I know we're on Zoom, but ultimately what needs to happen is people just genuinely connecting and that yeah. there's no obstruction to that. A lot of what I've learned is based off Sanford Meisner. Hmm. He talks in his book about how it takes 20 years to become an actor. I've been doing this for 12. I wasn't even planning on thinking of teaching people until I hit that 20 year mark. Hmm. It's just been people coming up and saying, Hey, listen, I know you do this. I really want to start. I need to know where to begin. And I've done that. You know, I know how to fight for this dream. And then when it comes to craft, it, I, I kind of simplified it for you. It's just... Mm -hmm. I, whenever I'm on a set, I just try to make sure people are living as truthfully as they can in this imaginary circumstance that they may be living in. Mm -hmm. So you have like Netflix film on one hand, and then in the other, you kind of like more of an independent realm and actually a YouTube venture as well. Mm -hmm. You have mm -hmm. your Majulif, that's right. <laughs> Majulif channel. Um, it's right. your family. Tell us yeah. more about that. The channel is a thing that happened very accidentally. We The kids always mess around with it. Uh, back in Orlando, Jenny was a teacher. I was getting this thing started. They would just start filming these fun little things. 
Well, when we moved here, our eldest son, who kind of knows more about the social media world, he's like, hey, he just started saying we should do reviews on the movies we watch and just post them. I was like, oh, okay, that sounds cool. And for the longest time, my wife and I, we wanted to do like a blog and we just never, we never knew where to start. Mm-hmm. Well, leave it to the kids, man. They figured it out. We, <laughs> we started doing these movie reviews. And then one day he's like, hey, I want to do, let's do a reaction. People do this on YouTube. And I was like, reactions? Good teachers always say acting is reacting. And I was like, yeah, I can dig it. Sure, we'll, <laughs> we'll do this. Okay. That's kind of how it kicked off. We did a reaction to Power Rangers. That was just fun. But I think the, the kicker was when we did a reaction to the one of the Avengers movies. Mm. And the response was insane. I mean, yeah. I think we had like 50,000 views overnight. It was something yeah. ridiculous. And that's kind of where it is. But now we've turned that channel into this place where we also get creative. We have our short films that we shoot there. We do yeah. little sketches and games and mm-hmm. we're a family of artists and we have an outlet and we're just very, very grateful for that. What about that role that Magilif plays within your creative space these days? Mm-hmm. Like where are you headed in your acting? You know, I could tell you we're zeroing in on individual careers of the kids. So Imaginative is an acronym of all of our names. And so as individual artists, we are all rooting for each other and helping each other out. Now, some of our viewers on YouTube, they've seen some of our short films. Uh, My oldest son has worked on Goosebumps 2 and people have noticed and people have noticed my work and they're like, hey, we saw you in this. (laughs) I think our goal is to just focus on the individual and we'll see if if someone approaches us to write for, you know, an independent, and that's happened, that's happened where we get invited to either act on an independent short or help write one or help script doctor one, mm-hmm. whatever opportunity presents itself, we're going to run with it. And we're going to give as much of our attention and passion toward a short indie project like we would a Netflix mega feature, whatever, (laughs) Uh, because ultimately it's just going to come down to story for us, you know, and, and Magilev is really, that's what we're about. We're about making sure that the story is, is saying a little bit more than just have fun, enjoy the explosions and the action. (laughs) Yeah. 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 What difficulties did you run into for creating for YouTube? Oh, uh, well, there's the technical, of course, learning what we really needed to handle some of the editing uh, capacities that we need. Mm-hmm. Figuring out editing, figuring out mm-hmm. the best camera so that we could capture ourselves and, and for it to look a little bit more cinematic. We've learned from YouTubers like Casey Neistat. We know we're filmmakers, so we want to have a filmmaker feel to our vlogs so that the editing feels more like a documentary at times. We signed up for a short film contest during shutdown, lockdown days, and we spent, I think, three days between the five of us. And it wasn't until that third day that it was the the three kids that came up with the concept. And I was like, Hey, that, and we were all laughing out loud. So we knew this is okay. Three days in, we figured this out and we shot a short film. So it's, it's a lot, it's a lot because there's five creative heads and then there's the tech. We figured out the tech, but when it comes to let's brainstorm ideas, it, it takes us some time to find a good compromise. How was the learning curve when it came to the advertising side of things? You know, like getting mm. viewers and growing an audience and, you know, that kind of thing. It definitely took uh, research, a lot of research on on my part with just titles and metadata and tags, um, knowing when to post, learning how to read the YouTube analytics so that you know when is our audience watching our work, you know, 
Um, I can't imagine who does that for like Netflix, you know? Oh mm-hmm. my gosh. It should yeah. be a team of like people, I would imagine. I've had to learn all that. Like what you what you say in the video matters, what you put in the tags and all that matters. And then what other videos you kind of uh, align yourself with, you know, all of that matters. So it's it's learning all of that. And then how to bring that to like your Instagram and, and get mm-hmm. people to organically want to watch your stuff without you being like, Hey guys, you know, click my link <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. to spammy and all that. So it's, it's like learning a new language. It's a, it's a culture. It's like this. So, and at least in YouTube, I'm still learning the Instagram culture to be very honest with you, which I feel like <laughs> yeah. it's just changed. It just yeah. continues to change on me. Oh but, yeah. Especially yeah, with reels, like with, with reels and like oh, yeah. the kind of the yeah. integration between that and like social media is just a crazy beast in and of itself, but yeah, like, creating for social media it it is always a source of curiosity for me because it's something that i haven't cracked yet you know particularly for those who make it a career you know for those who run a channel and have like for for instance i remember a couple of guys they're being extremely transparent with their show and and it was probably i don't know like millions of views on their stats wow and their earnings were only about like a couple thousand dollars at most you know Mm. like so it wasn't He's just like, yeah, for all you people who think this is such a driving force of income, you know, mm, like, no, yeah, know, that's yeah. it takes a lot to get to a point where you're like, yeah, I make a living off my YouTube channel. <laughs> you you need, you know, you've got to be in the millions as far as subscribers, I think. Um, and then have you've got to have a, a really good team of people. We have a manager, if you will, and we just started with them and we're learning more from them. Oh, interesting. And it's it's kind of like a talent agent, but they do the, they do it for channels. And so it's great because now we're learning this approach that is a little bit more, um, it's, it's still creative, which mm-hmm. is extremely important, but it, then it's also very strategic in monetization and business and mm-hmm. making sure that our creative effort does find some sort of financial grounds. Um, but it's, it's a slow build. Yeah, it really yeah. is. You know, you mentioned that the channel was, what did you say? The intersection of family, film and faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm, correct. Film and family, for sure. The faith part is something that it's a part of who we are. We don't shy away from it, but we yeah, certainly that's that's not our niche, if you will. You know, yeah. we're not like a Christian YouTube channel We're we just happen to be a, a family of faith, a family that knows that we are where we are today because of a greater grace and divinity, you know, mm-hmm. divine intervention, if you will. And so when asked, we talk about it, but it's not like, yeah, it's not the niche of our channel per se. Mm-hmm. but it is a part of who we are. And I think it comes through. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's the unspoken. You know, there's one of my favorite saints says, go out into the world and share the gospel and use words if necessary. That's kind of what our channel is. Like, we don't we don't need to talk about it. Let's just live. How about we just live it? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's really a lot of our little catchphrases is just live in it. Just live in it. And that's also an acting thing. Yeah. Just live in this moment. Can we just connect? Can Let's just be kind and loving to each other and spread the light. Several times on this podcast, we've kind of highlighted healthy boundaries and um, mm-hmm. a good balance between like your your work and your home because so much about this industry can swirl around. Like if you are not killing yourself for Hollywood, then you are not obsessed enough. Mm. And I was mm-hmm. curious how you found that kind of intersection within your professional life. Man, the balance act. Yeah. It's a dance, you know? That's how I like to think about it. It's a dance, especially when you have, we have three teenagers in the house. My wife and I were both artists as well and Mm -hmm. educators. And then our kids are each artists. 
I mean, yesterday was a day where we had four auditions between me and my two boys. So it's, it's a whole family effort. You know, we run lines with each other. We, we set up the studio, the space, we, we mark the lights. It's a whole family unit. That's amazing. Those, those babies were keeping us cheerful when we were staying up late writing papers. So (laughs) it's a beautiful thing now to talk about having my oldest direct me while I was, you know, trying to hit comedic notes last night at, you know, 1145 at night. And then he jumps on me with editing for the YouTube channel almost all this morning. It's, it's something that does need its pause. We do need a moment to just be family where it's not about editing, where it's not about acting. It's not about uh, pursuing the dream. It's how about we just live in the dream right now? The dream that we're living, which is we've got this little house. We've got a little, a little space to call our own. We've got a little bit of time to just sit veg out in front of the TV, or maybe we just go walk the dog. Um, how about we just like go sit down somewhere and, and just enjoy the breeze? Like I remember one time we went to the river and we just sat by the river and did nothing for all of 15 minutes, just sat there listening to the water. It, it's very, it's very challenging, but I love the challenge. I, I love it. I'm a bit of a masochist. I mean, I was the kid that did, I did football track. I worked in high school and I rode my bike everywhere. So um, if I'm not doing something that's keeping me ultra busy, I'm probably not alive. And so I have to keep, (laughs) keep at it. I love it. You know, I actually heard a quote one time that said, rest is a discipline. Yes. It's hard. I'm going to write that. I have never heard that. (laughs) It's hard. It really is. (sighs) You just made me exhale. Listen, that is a thing I never thought, I never considered that it's something I have to like master Mm. and just be good at. Mm. Uh, You know, we we live in a society that teaches us, go, 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 go. You got to get it. You got to get it. Hustle, hustle, hustle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, know, achieve greatness. But only recently have I been listening to stuff and reading stuff and, and being mentored by people that say, you need to pause, just rest. Yeah. Catch your breath, man. Mm-hmm. Rest is a discipline. Yeah. <laughs> People are like, we just want to get back to work, you know? Yeah. Glad it's starting up again. I'll tell you what. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Did it did it treat you guys all right? Y- you mean what? No. COVID. COVID. Like, were you uh, guys all right? Yeah. No, no. Health-wise, yeah. thank God we've been uh, physically well. We, well, we've not, not been... even just like, uh, like professionally. Cause like tons of my, tons of my friends, they were out of work for months. No, no, I've been out of work. I've not worked since. Yeah. It's been a while. I haven't been on a set this whole time. Yeah. Uh, it's just harder. It's harder. And now that it's starting up, the auditions are rolling. in, so that's nice. Yeah. I had a project that might have swung my way. We did a lot of the pre, like the first auditions before all of this kind of hit. And so it looked like it was going to be a sure thing. Then I did some tests for it and, you know, like screen tests. I mean, Mm -hmm. and it just didn't, it didn't work out. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know they were, they started to shoot that in August, but then they got hit with hurricanes on top of COVID. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So I, I, I literally just sent prayers. I was like, man, I hope those guys get their show done. It's been hard. It's been hard, but people have had, there's other people that have had it even worse because they have the financial strain plus health strain. Mm. And I've, I've told my family again and again, look, if we're healthy, we've got everything we need. If Mm. money comes and goes, we'll be fine. But not working takes its toll. I miss it. I miss being on sets. I really do. 
Mm-hmm. And for my friends that have been on and colleagues that have been on, they describe the the atmosphere and it's it's just different. So we have some listener questions from our Insta and Facebook stories uh, and Twitter. If you want to ask mm. your questions to future guests, our handle on Insta and Twitter is Collab Inc. Film again. So this one is, what is the most encouraging advice you've been given that has been true? It's been uttered by a fictional character. And then I've, I've said it to someone, but I think it didn't land until my daughter said it to me. It's that Gandalf quote. It's about what you do with the time that is given to you. You know, on this concept of rest and, and I, there's no time to rest. I got, I have no time. I have to maximize my time. I have to, you know, the hustle, hustle, hustle. You know, for me, the Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, all that, all of that, it, it has so much significance. But it's that one moment in the film and in, in the Fellowship of the Ring, it just destroys me in the best way. It's just so simple. And when I apply it, when I just let myself feel this sense of peace, because I'm giving everything I've got right now. And that's all that matters is what am, what am I doing with this time? I'm, I'm going to focus on loving. I'm going to focus on creating and building and edifying people, mm. especially my people, my family. And there's days where I forget to do that for myself. The next thing I want to point at, it wasn't until my daughter said it that I got it because she made me realize I wasn't doing this for myself. I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't having that perspective of, I am doing enough for this time that I'm given. Dad, you're doing enough. Yeah. You know, the time you've been given, you're making something of it. It's, I think when your child tells you something <laughs> that you know you've said before and it lands like, to, to the core of you, you're like, oh my gosh, I use the same words. <laughs> what is going on right now? Why didn't I really fully fathom what I was saying? But it, sometimes it's like that. You just have to hear it from them, from yeah. the kids that watch us. The next question was, what kind of a plan B job should an actor have or should they? <laughs> oh, that's a question. It's a question that's asked and thought about and milled about and debated about. Okay. So if I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, right? That whole thing. If I was, so I mentioned Lord of the Rings. I I saw that film when I was a senior in high school in the theaters. And if by some magical way I could have known then what I know now, I would not have a plan B. I would just plan out my career study as an actor should. I'm talking if you know you want to be an actor and you know you want to be in films and you want to make films, find out who your heroes are, what they did, where they studied, um, who they studied with, all that stuff, and create a track that helps you focus on that. And that means, yes, you may have to work at jobs you don't like. Mm-hmm. I cleaned houses. I worked at Publix Deli. I love Publix, but when I'm on the customer side, not they're great employers, but it's hard work, very hard work. You do what you need to do, right? To do the mm-hmm. thing you love. And if if acting is the thing you love, find you you're just gonna have to find a way to to make it work. And some people I've I've had students who financially they're good now. They're they're in a position where they studied something else. That I have one student who's a software engineer. And if you've kind of already had your plan B set, good for you. You've got some financial grounds to to do what you got to do but plan b's are they could be finicky they can actually create a problem it really depends on the individual 
if you're if you're the kind of person that thrives with structure and security, you probably need some sort of just consistent income. Mm. You know, if you're more of the explorer spirit where, you know, you don't necessarily worry about where you're going to get your next meal because you'll be fine with just a cup of rice. Mm-hmm then maybe you definitely are the one that says, no, I'm fine. I think that's that's very liberating when you can say, I have a plan and it's just a focus on this thing. Mm. It, it's complicated though. It can yeah. get very complicated. As an actor, have you ever been asked to do something against your morals and how did you handle it? Mm, short answer is no. I, I've not, thank God. I've, um, I've auditioned for some things that I was, I was on the fence about, you know? I think that's the beauty of the audition process. You sit some time with a character. You know, our job is to meet these characters when we first receive the sides or the script. And we meet them like a person on the page and reading it. But then when I'm on set, by the time I'm on set, I think a lot of that has been anticipated and and, and discussed or to some degree or the other. Okay. Um, I have been very, very fortunate that I've never had to do something in the moment where I'm like, oh, this is so wrong. Why am I going through this? I think that comes from a pretty sound family communication structure. Mm. My wife is very involved in a lot of the scripts I get. I I don't really get cast too often in things that are outside of who I am, Mm. which is great, like too far outside, you know, but even when we're just reading through scripts, I'm usually prepared for what may or may not come on set. By the time an offer comes in, you and your agent should be having a lot of these discussions, especially if the role involves anything that is potentially compromising to your integrity or, or what you represent, right? I think those are those are key things to to keep in mind. Last question, what question should I have asked you? Wow. <laughs> yeah, here's one. Why are you still doing this? <laughs> Why are you still doing this? I ask myself all the time on the daily and uh, I think it's a normal thing to ask when you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> mm not just an actor, but when you're working for yourself and you're trying to make a living for yourself, I think it makes it easier when your, your business is doing really good and you're just, you're, you're just profit is just awesome. And you know, there's people these days that are not seeing a lot of that because of the situation the world's in. But for me personally, that question, had you asked it, I would have just said Chadwick Boseman would have been my answer. His passing solidified why I do this. I admired him since the first day I saw him on screen. The deep, deep sadness I have that I will never get to work with him. But his passing as an actor solidified that I do this because I, I needed to have a clarity that I didn't ever want to take a role that would compromise my integrity, but also my family's, my Latino culture. Because there's enough of that. I think John Leguizamo was saying it in an article recently that it's so easy for us to get cast as with this negative spin, Mm. always the bad guy, always the, you know, negative. It's just negative. It takes a lot of courage to say, well, I I really don't want to get cast as that. And I want to tell different kinds of stories. Mm. And it takes a lot of faith because potentially I'm saying no to a lot of work, <laughs> mm. you know, by the big people in charge. But then that empowers me because then I'm forcing myself to create my own stories that when my kids watch me on screen or other kids that look like me, or they don't even have to look like me. They just, mm. they can see someone of my essence and realize, yeah, they're not all bad. No, we're not. Mm. 
there's a lot of real good, you know. Um, Thunderbirds, they're liberators. That's right. That's right. I think when you meet Sparks, Coldfoot is one of my native best friends. Mm. And then Gomez, that's who I play. Corporal Abel Gomez. When you meet those three and the rest of the 157, you'll see, you know, that those are the kind of roles. Those are the kind of people that that need to be seen on screen. And there's there's a lot of good examples out there. Of, there's more of the good now, but I don't know. It was his passing that really solidified that for me. And when I feel down and when I feel like it's just not a good day for the business, for this little business, I just I just remember him because it's not about me. On my deathbed, it needs to be about the work I left behind, the legacy I left with my kids, with my wife, with with the people that truly know me. And hopefully my work meant far more than just entertainment. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It is my pleasure and honor. If you enjoyed this interview, follow us right here and check out more episodes at media.collabinc.org. If you have comments or know someone who would be a great guest on our show, send in your suggestions to tanya at collabinc.org. Jose, thanks so much again for your time. Be well and God bless. We'll see you next time on There to Hear. Here.